Amen. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 30 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 30. I remember, uh, it was a few years ago, I got a call from work. Uh, Andrea was taking the kids to the park, and she, her van, she pulled up to park in the grass, and her van was stuck in the mud. And she called me because uh, she didn't know how to get it out. It was, it, was just, it was just there. And it's interesting, if you've never been stuck in the mud, um, conventional wisdom tells us all the same thing. Stomp on the gas. That's what you're supposed to do, right? You just, you get stuck in the mud, you, well, stomp on the gas. That's how you get out every other time. That's how you go and take the car. And all that ends up happening when, when you do that is that you keep getting uh, more stuck, you're stucker than you were before. And uh, so this was certainly the case for the van. You know, it, it, it actually was less gas that ends up getting you out. And in some cases, you realize I'm so stuck that no amount of gas, whether how high or how low, will actually get me out of this. And I'm just going to have to call a tow truck. That's the only way I'm going to actually be able to get out of this mess that I'm in. This morning, we're looking at uh, Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 30, and in it, in the whole section of Matthew 11 to 13, we're seeing responses to the kingdom of God, and in fact, responses to Jesus Christ himself. As he has come to deliver the message of the kingdom, many people are responding, and chapters 11 through 13 are basically their responses to Jesus. They're not all good, they're not all warm, but uh, they're responses nonetheless. And what we're going to see this morning in verses 20 to 30 is Jesus beginning to address the crowd around him. And he's going to address two different crowds. The ones that are stuck and the ones that are free, the ones that are condemned, and the ones that are redeemed. So with that in mind, let's look at our passage, Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 30. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about this text, as we study it, as we reflect on it, as we apply it to our lives, help us. We've just read that you opened the eyes of the blind. And so we pray that you would hear now. Anyone among us that is completely blind in sin, I pray you would open their eyes. For the rest of us here, who regularly study your word, who regularly hear from you through your word, who regularly come to you in prayer, give us help as well as we seek to apply it to our lives and find a full reckoning for our sin. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If we were to draw up sides for kickball right now, I can tell you how it would begin. We'd start by selecting two team captains. Uh, it's obvious. And then you know who would be picked. It would start with the most physically active, the most physically fit people in our midst. So me, of course, that's, that's a given. Uh, no, in all seriousness, obviously, it would probably start with our young, strapping college guys, mainly because they haven't hurt their back yet. Uh, it would start with them. They're the most physically fit, most physically active among us. But let me tell you guys, uh, you're at the peak of your physical abilities. It's all downhill from here. All of the selfies that you're taking right now, you're going to look back on in, 30, 30, in, tw in 20 years, by the time you're 40, and you're going to go, I was so skinny. I don't care what you look like right now. I don't care if you're pleased with your physical fitness. You're going to look back on that day, on this day, and say, man, I was so fit back then. What did I ever complain about? So congratulations. Um, <laughs> but in all seriousness, the, the selection process would start with the most physically fit, the most active people among us, the ones that could handle it, and then it would go down to the least physically fit. And I'm not going to name any names, but if you're thinking to yourself, I hope it wouldn't be me, it's probably you. In the Gospel of Matthew, however, Jesus is laying out the kingdom of heaven. He's defining for us its citizenship. And ironically, what we find in the selection process of those that are welcomed into the kingdom of heaven, it's entirely different than our natural processes that we would take toward anything else, such as kickball. This come, shouldn't come as much of a surprise when we see God's pattern as he has given this to us in the Old Testament, we see him select Jacob over Esau, younger over his older brother. We see him select uh, his, Joseph uh, to save the, his brothers, uh, save all of Israel, in fact, over the rest of his brothers. We see him select Ephraim, the younger, over Manasseh. We see him select David over the rest of his brothers, even though David is small in stature. God even tells Samuel, man looks at the outward appearance and God looks at the heart. So this shouldn't come as much of a surprise to us that when we get to the kingdom of God, as it's being established by the promised Messiah, that it would be those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, the ones who are persecuted, that have the prized position in the kingdom of heaven and all else are evicted, as it were. But you can see 
how this message of the kingdom of heaven would fly in the face of all of those who are expecting a different kind of Messiah than the one we have in Jesus. The kind of Messiah that comes in and establishes a kingdom and a throne and a rule and a reign. That's the kind of Messiah we want. What's with all this poor in spirit junk? I don't want that. You can see how that flies in the face of the natural man as he's hearing Jesus preaching. As I said in, the, in this section of Matthew that we're in, we're going to see different reactions to the kingdom of God. And more specifically, to Jesus himself. Last week in verses 1 to 19 of chapter 11, we saw three responses that Jesus drew our attention to. First one, we saw the reaction of doubt that John the Baptist gave by sending his disciples. And we saw the reaction to the kingdom of persecution, the, re- the response of, of power where, the, where Herod Antipas and the powerful people that have John in prison right now always seek to squash the kingdom of heaven. And then we saw the response of apathy of people that hear the preaching of John the Baptist, of see the miracles that Jesus is performing, and they refuse to respond in repentance. In our passage this morning, Jesus is now going to take that last group and he's going to zero in on the apathetic. And he's going to speak to two different people that are in his audience that are listening to him teach and preach. The first is the condemned in verses 20 to 24, and then the second is the accepted in 25 to 30. First, I want to look at the condemned. Jesus has just condemned most of the people listening to him, which is not a tactic most public speakers want to take, to be frank with you. Nobody wants to stand up and condemn everybody in their listening. Apparently, Jesus did not read how to win friends and influence people. But remember what he said in verse 16. To what shall I compare this generation? And then he compares them to people that remain unmoved. Their hearts remain completely unstirred by the preaching of Jesus. By what else? By by John's preaching, he says in verse 18. And by his own preaching and works, the people remain completely unmoved. What is the content of John and Jesus' preaching, though? Well, he told us back in Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 4, he told us exactly what the content of both of their preaching was. And it's the same thing. They were both preaching the same message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was the same message. So the people in this generation that Jesus is preaching to, that John was preaching to, remain unmoved by their preaching. In other words, they don't want to come forward and respond in repentance to the preaching of John or Jesus. And they use a variety of excuses too. Lots of reasons why they don't want to repent. Jesus and John were two pretty opposite characters in the scriptures. They couldn't have been more different John was more or less a crazy dude. He was a wild character. He was dressed like a prophet. He talked like a prophet. He took everything serious like a prophet. And what did they say? He's too radical for us. That man has a demon. Jesus comes dressed quite the opposite. He comes teaching and preaching as well, but he's more like an everyday person. He's taking part in the everyday activities of the everyday people. They use that as an excuse too. He's too much like the rest of us. 
to be the Messiah. You see him? He, he keeps bad company. Don't we know? Bad company corrupts good morals. Surely this must be an immoral man. Look at the company that he keeps. The point is that they'll use any excuse possible not to come forward in repentance of sin. And they'll point at the man and they'll say, I don't like the man. And because I don't like the man, I don't like the message. So Jesus turns now to the cities that have been receiving his teaching and his preaching ministry over the last, we'll say, year or so. He's been traveling through these areas. He's been doing and preaching and teaching, performing miracles, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons. But again, the response from the generation has been to receive the miracles and sometimes with joy and exuberance. They're grateful for that miracle, but then absolutely no repentance on the back end. So this becomes more than just a little bit problematic because the reason Jesus has come, the angel tells Joseph, is to save his people from their sins. That's what the angel tells Joseph at the beginning of the book. To truly be saved from their sins, they clearly must believe in Jesus. They must repent from their sins, and they must follow him with their life as Jesus has already told one person who wants to be his disciple. Anyone who comes after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. He's already said that to someone. That is what is required. But let's get something clear. What does it mean to repent? What does it mean to repent? It's best, I think, to think of it in two categories coming together in one word, repentance, or at least in two parts. First, it means that you would feel remorse for your sin. Very simply, repentance is first and foremost feeling remorse for your sin. So the cities, he's saying, did not feel remorse for their sin against God. But it's not just a bad feeling about sin. There's lots of people that have bad feelings about their sins but that don't ever actually reach repentance. Which brings us to the second part of repentance. It's a kind of remorse that leads to the change in one's mind and heart toward the previous action. It's the kind of remorse that leads to a change in one's mind and heart toward the previous action. So I'm not merely feeling guilt. I'm feeling so much guilt and sorrow over my own sin, that it, that it grieves God, and then it grieves me that it grieves God, that I turn from the sin at all cost and pursue a different course of action. So in some cases, that's going to mean drastic action. As an example, a person that's sinning by gossip, it might lead them to sever all relationships that are prone to gossip. Just cut them off right there. Or perhaps even confront all of their existing relationships with the sinfulness of gossip. A person that is sinning by lust might ditch the smartphone, might ditch the TV, to which all their friends might say, you live like a monk. Might cause them to do that, might cause them to leave. It would cause them to leave a fornicating relationship. Ditch it all together. 
A person sinning by angry explosions, angry outbursts, will obviously confess that to others, will have all kinds of accountability in their lives, all kinds of intervention in their lives. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. These seem like extreme measures, don't they? Seems like a a drastic thing to do when sin is holding me down. But it comes back to the seriousness of the message of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is denying yourself. But a lot of people stop there. It's not only that. Repentance is not only setting aside those things, taking even extreme measures to put those things away, but it's also taking up all new behaviors in everyday life. You're changing the pattern of your life. See, that's the evidence that true repentance has actually been found in the heart and mind. That it's actually caused your heart and mind to be changed on the matter. That's the evidence. Is that you've adopted an entirely new way of living. So the one prone to lust would not only sever access to all of those things that facilitate his passions. But he would also pick up new uses of his time altogether. We start adopting new practices. We start using his phone or his whatever to listen to the word preached and taught, reminding himself regularly of who he follows. He would read the word regularly, develop a deeper prayer life slowly over time. In other words, he's taking up his cross daily. So as Matthew tells us in verse 20, Jesus is now denouncing all of the cities that he's been ministering in because of their lack of repentance at his preaching and his miracles. They're not responding to the kingdom of heaven in ways that are evidence of salvation, but in ways that are, in fact, condemning. In verse 21, he condemns Chorazin and Bethsaida two towns that are close to the Sea of Galilee where he's been doing a lot of ministry. And then in verse 23, he condemns Capernaum, his own hometown, his own base of operations that's also right there on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And he compares all of these, we'll call them New Testament towns, to Old Testament towns that received God's judgment in the Old Testament for their sinfulness. Tyre and Sidon were these large They were Phoenician cities, and they were getting closer toward the Mediterranean Sea, and they were often denounced in the Old Testament, particularly by the prophets, for their worship of Baal. Sodom, in verse 23, is one that many of us will probably recognize. It's the city where, along with its sister city, Gomorrah, that are destroyed for their rampant, sinful sexual practices. So these cities are really bad These Old Testament cities are are awful. He pronounces woe on the New Testament cities. And he says to them, because if the works that he was doing and the message that he is preaching and that John was preaching had been done in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, the Old Testament cities would have repented. Instead of being destroyed. Further, 
he says that because the New Testament cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, had the preaching of the Messiah in them, they actually saw Jesus and they didn't respond in repentance, they will be judged more severely on the day of judgment than the Old Testament cities who did not have that kind of witness. Now both the Old Testament cities and the New Testament cities are clearly condemned. Both of them are hellbound, but one is condemned more severely than the other. He says that it will be more bearable on the day of judgment in verse 22, and then he repeats nearly the exact same thing in verse 24. Just as it says, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. Remember, he said that last week. Whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist because they've seen and they believe in the Messiah, so also the one who has seen the Messiah's ministry and who has heard his preaching and did not repent will be judged with greater scrutiny. Now I ask you, what does this say about America? I fear that many people in America are in a very curious position when it comes to the Day of Judgment. America is without a doubt the most gospel-saturated country that has ever existed on the earth. In the South, you can find a church that believes the gospel nearly on every corner. When a person moves from here and moves to another town, I sit down with them and we start looking at churches in their area, what those churches believe. We start identifying several churches in the area that they might attend, picking their, encouraging them to pick their house and their living situation based on where those churches might be, where those good churches might be so they can live at least in the area. And I can do so with relative confidence, knowing that regardless of the city you move to, I'm probably going to find at least, at the very least, one that believes the Bible, takes it seriously, and believes in the gospel message. And yet with all of that witness, with all of that preaching, and in spite of being warned of coming judgment, many in this country, many in churches just like this one, and maybe even many in this very church, will continue in a refusal to repent of sin. But here's what some do here. And here's what some respond like when they hear preaching in America. A lot of times what they hear from the preacher is go to church Share the gospel. They hear, try to be a good person. And what they walk out with is that message as the gospel. Satan is quite content for you to hear that message as the gospel 
so long as you never hear the word repent. So that it goes in one ear and it goes right out the other. And in reality, the ones to whom Jesus has issued passports for citizenship in the kingdom of heaven are the repentant who trust God's forgiveness through Christ. Those are the ones that are included. Not merely the ones who go out and share the gospel. Not merely the ones who go out and try to be a good person. It doesn't matter how many good works you do. It doesn't matter what you think Jesus did or didn't do 2,000 years ago. If there is no repentance of sin, salvation is not yours, and you do not truly believe in Jesus Christ. Many will try to white-knuckle their way into the kingdom of God. To grip as tightly as they can. And what they try to do is mimic the works of Christians. They look at Christians and they say, I want to be a Christian and so at least I want to look like one and so I want to do exactly what that person is doing. They try to do what a Christian does. When you ask them what makes you a Christian, they'll say the same kinds of things. I believe in Jesus. I try to be a good person. I try to stand up uh, for Jesus whenever I can in my workplace. I try to go to church and I try to read my Bible. But what they've fallen into is moralism. Moralism is faking like you have a repentant heart by doing the works that result from repentance. When a person is repentant, what do they do? They go to church. They read their Bible. They sing praises to God. They try to stand up for Jesus in their workplace. And so what the unrepentant heart does is they look at the works that that Christian is doing, and then they try to mimic them with everything that they have, thinking that that is Christianity, that that is the gospel. But friend, let me tell you that you're stuck in the mud of sin, and all those works that you're attempting to do are equivalent to stomping on the gas. The gas is good. In fact, it's quite good. In fact, it's very beneficial. No car can go without it. Except those crazy electric ones. But stomping on the gas pedal so long as you're on the street is good. But if you are stuck in the mud, it is merely digging you deeper because so long as you can appease your own conscience, you feel good about yourself and you can convince yourself and maybe everyone around you that you're saved. but you're worse stuck than you were before. See, the worst kind of unbeliever is one that thinks he's saved. Friend, if you maintain that position, when the day of judgment arrives, you're going to spend an eternity in hell. And the severity of that judgment will be greater than the one who never heard the true gospel because you're sitting in a church right now that preaches Jesus as the Messiah, preaches the Bible as true, preaches you as needing forgiveness, and you refuse to do what is necessary to be saved. Now, it would be bleak if we stopped there. That would be a bleak place to leave it. But let's look now to Christ who offers hope as he turns to the accepted. We might be left thinking, 
What hope is there for me? What hope do I have? How can I be saved? Well, in the middle of everyone there in verse 25, Jesus just starts praying. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. When we read Jesus saying in verses 21 and 23, back in the previous part of the passage, that if Tyre and Sidon and Sodom had seen the kinds of works they, that he's doing, they would have repented. When we read that, we have to realize at some point that Jesus has even contingent knowledge. Knowing that what it would take for someone to repent. The kinds of works that would have to be produced in order for Tyre and Sidon and Sodom even to fall on their face in repentance, much like he did with Nineveh. Well, he has to know that. He says that right there in the text. And you may have asked yourself, well, why didn't he just do that? Why didn't he raise up Jonah or a Jonah-like character and just send them there into Tyre and Sidon and Sodom? The answer is the same answer as to why he isn't doing what is required for his audience that he's preaching to now to come to repentance. He says, the Father has hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Now, as an aside, he's not talking about little children literally, like a little child, saying that he's, referred them, uh, he's revealed himself to them. He, he uses the word little children as a euphemism throughout the, the Gospel of Matthew, and it's prevalent many times in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's, it's a euphemism for people who are dependent on him, people that believe in him and are dependent on him for their status in the family of God. And so we'll see this in Matthew chapter 18, where to make matters even more confusing, he'll use an actual child, and he'll say, you have to become like one of these to come into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you must be completely dependent on him for status inside the kingdom of heaven. So he uses little children to refer to people who, like, like children, depend on him for their status in the kingdom. But back to the question, how does one come to a saving knowledge of the truth well, it's not just mere white-knuckled moralism, but it's actual repentant salvation. How does one come to actual repentant salvation? Jesus is clear that his eyes must be opened by the Father. Period. His sin is revealed to him by the Father. He sees it, and he comes to Christ. A few weeks ago, we saw in John chapter 6, where Jesus said, starting in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. It's Jesus' mission is to give, is to Keep those and not lose any of those that the Father has opened their eyes. Brothers and sisters, you will share the gospel. You have experienced this, no doubt, before. 
where you will share the gospel with people who clearly hear the message of salvation. They clearly can articulate back to you the gospel that you just said. They hear the call to repentance. They could even tell it back to you exactly like you gave it to them. You might even identify for them their sin that they need to repent of. They might even be able to repeat those back to you. But then when it comes time to them, for them to respond, they don't. Some of these people may be family members of ours. Good, dear friends of ours. What does that mean we do? Does that mean we stop sharing? No, it doesn't mean we stop sharing. Does it mean we stop praying? No, it doesn't mean we stop praying. Some of these people are our friends, our family members. It doesn't mean we stop telling them or praying for them. What it does mean is that unless the Lord, unless the Lord of heaven and earth opens their eyes to sin and allows them to see their desperate need for salvation, they will not turn and be saved. Period. But then it comes not only by the Father opening their eyes, but also by the Son's invitation. Look at what Jesus says in verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus is being very offensive right now. He's stepping on a lot of toes, but don't get me wrong. No Jew would have a problem with God opening the eyes of someone to salvation or being selective in salvation. No one would have a problem with that, but they take great offense to Jesus calling God his Father. And supposing that he had the authority and the ability to speak on his behalf and to reveal the Father to anyone. They would take great offense to that. In fact, they do. And in fact, it will lead to Jesus' crucifixion and accusation that he is blaspheming. Does Jesus back down? No. In fact, he doubles down. Look at what he says in 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus seems to be referencing, I think, a well-known passage, something that would have been well-known in the first century to the Jews that are listening to him, a well-known passage from a document that is not in the Bible. It's not a biblical book by any means. It's a historical book that all of the Jews would have read in his audience, all of the Jews would have known, and there's some themes that appear in the book that he is bringing back into his uh, call here, into his beckoning of people here that is similar to the things that this book says. The book is called the book of Sirach, and it's in what we would now refer to as the Apocrypha. Now, I'm going to quote from the relevant passage in Sirach, and I want to be clear before I do that this is not a biblical book. This is not a book that we find authoritative. This would be equivalent to Jesus saying some things that are similar to a, an author that we would read in today's day and age. 
right? So it's someone that we would be familiar with, maybe some teaching that we would be familiar with, some themes that we would be familiar with, and he's going to spout that off as a way of kind of regurgitating some of those concepts that people would already have read and understand, but he's going to put a twist on it. So he, I think what he's saying comes from this passage in Sirach 51, 23 to 27. He says, where it says, draw near to me, you who are uneducated, and lodge in the house of instruction. Why do you say you are lacking in these things? And why do you endure such great thirst? I opened my mouth and said, acquire wisdom for yourselves without money. Put your neck under her yoke and let your souls receive instruction. It is to be found close by. See with your own eyes that I have labored but little and found for myself much serenity. In this passage, wisdom is like a person, much like it is in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom acts like a person calling the reader, similar to the way Jesus is calling the disciple to himself, but with one monumental difference. See, in the book of Sirach, which is one of the reasons it's not authoritative and it's not in our Bibles, Wisdom is telling the reader to come and learn, come and work, come and study, come and labor to find rest. But Jesus is changing it. Wisdom wants you to come and study the Old Testament law so that you will know and you'll be able to live and you'll be able to find rest. But Jesus is making a pivotal change. Instead, he's saying, when you're tired of labor, when you've spun your tires in the mud until you can't spin them any longer, come to me and then you will find rest. Come to me and I will give you rest. You live and you work and you toil so that God might be pleased with what you're doing. I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to stick up for Jesus only to find yourself stuck in the same muddy rut of sin. Sin which you are trying your best to cover over with more good works, hoping that in the end, when I encounter the judgment seat of God, that he's going to weigh my good works against my bad works, and he's going to find that the good works weigh more. But I am telling you, what Jesus is telling you, is that you cannot hit the gas hard enough to get your tires free. But Jesus is offering to so bear the burden of your sin that you would be completely cut free from the pit. Friend, you cannot possibly fathom the depths of the grace of God. You cannot possibly understand how many times he can hear from you, I am sorry. The unrepentant position that you're in now is actually a position of pride. You're being arrogant. And that is precisely the kind of person the Father has hidden the truth from. But when He opens your eyes to see your sin 
and you fall on your face and you confess those sins to him. This is precisely the person that Jesus calls a little child. This is the person that Jesus calls poor in spirit, a meek person, a mourner, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. See, the world calls you weak because of your tears, but the Father calls you a child. The world says that you're not manly if you talk about your faults and your feelings. But the Lord calls you more than manly. He calls you a son and an heir of the kingdom. You simply have to decide which kingdom you want to belong to. Kingdom of earth or the kingdom of heaven. The two could not be more opposite. You're going to have many times in your life where you think to yourself, I'm such a sinner. How is it possible for God to love me? But this is wrong thinking. This is worldly thinking. You're thinking about God like your friend who you've stolen from a thousand times. At some point, the friend is going to turn from you and they're going to stop being your friend. Every friend has his limit. But God isn't merely your fickle friend. He's a father. You need to think rightly about your relationship with him. You need to come to him in confession of your sin and repentance. Open your eyes to read the scriptures and find a God of mercy and benevolence who is also just, who poured out his wrath on his perfect son on the cross so that he would have no more wrath stored up for you. That's who you need to understand that he is. And remember that it's because of Jesus that he could possibly love me. That's the only reason. But if you're in a position where you're trying to perform for God so that he might find favor, so that you might find favor in his sight, then verse 30 is not going to make a lick of sense to you. He says, his burden is anything but light, you might say. Light in the Sermon on the Mount at the end of chapter 5, verse 48. Go back and read it sometime. He demands perfection. He says perfection is required. Well, that's not a light burden. What are you talking about light? That burden's not light. But when you humble yourself, when you come to Jesus confessing and repenting of your sins, you find rest for your soul. A life free from the worries of the realities of hell. A life free as a son or daughter, as an heir of the kingdom. As one who has been equipped for every good work. As one who is welcome to the table of God. As one who no longer feels the, that they have to perform in order to have the status before God. Christian. Stop wallowing in self-pity. It masquerades as self-deprecation. Woe is me, I'm such a sinner. It's at this point, surely I have outrun the grace of God. I have outrun His blood. I have surely gone too far this time. 
Let's make one thing unmistakably clear. If we could outrun the grace of God, all of us in this room would have by now. It is not humility that you're claiming. It is pride. At this moment now, you've managed to outdo something that God says He he did. It's pride. Confess your sin. And actually trust. Actually trust that Christ's blood is strong enough even to cover me in my sin. But if you're walking in unrepentant sin, sin that you're holding on to and indulging in, let me tell you, stop playing games with your soul. It's also pride. You're thinking to yourself, in the end, I'm hoping my works are good enough. I think that I'm actually a pretty good person, decent, struggle here, but my only hope in judgment is my own works. Maybe he finds me good enough. Then you become disillusioned by the Bible that says your righteousness is as filthy rags. Confess your sin. Realize you are stuck in a mud pit that you cannot get out of and you need a tow truck. Stop trusting in your own power to save yourself. Repent from your sin. Do what is necessary to remove yourself from temptation, to cut it free from your life. There's no pleasure that it can give you that will last. And sing praises to the God who has saved you through Christ. That is your only means of salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for all of us in this room held by the bondage of sin and decay. Pray for the man or woman right now caught regularly in the snares of pornography. That you would give them such a distaste and dissatisfaction for images on a screen that it would repulse them to the core. And instead, I pray that due to the message of repentance of sin and grace that you offer, the beckoning of them to come and find freedom in Christ, that they would see that as such joy that an image on the screen cannot replace it, cannot satisfy. Pray that those who are bent on tearing people apart tearing down the body of Christ, that you would confront them in their sin, that they would repent across all churches, that you would not let gossip or slander be on our mouths at all, that we would confess it and turn from it and call anyone out that participates in it.
Pray that those, perhaps even in this room, caught in the snares of adultery, that you would confront them in their sin, expose them in their sin. That all might be made aware of what's really going on. I pray for those that are held under the bondages of anxiety and stress. That you would give them peace and freedom. That you would give them for the first time relief from anxiety, from depression, from things that they're constantly distracted by. Pray for all of those who are in homes that are divided by unbelief and faith. That you would give them resilience and boldness to speak proudly about the gospel that they rest in. That their family or their spouse or whoever it is would see a marked difference in their life. That there would regularly be a, an appeal from their mouth just like Jesus gives here. Come to Christ all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Lord, I pray, if nothing else, that we gather in here on a Sunday morning by Sunday morning basis, seeking to know more of who you are and being filled with your word we break over our own sin and we trust all the more in Christ's blood to save us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.